the second Grand Slam of the year is finally upon us. There's been a couple of upsets, but the big guns are all going through. Cincinnati has concluded, but there's still been some COVID-19 controversy in the New York bubble. This is Breakpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Val Febo. Plenty to get through today. Joel Frucci joins me on the other line. Joel, how are you, mate? Val, we're still locked down, but... I tell you what, it was good waking up this morning and there was a Grand Slam on my television. That was really, really good. And you know what's even better? We're on the home straight now here in uh, in Melbourne town. Only a couple of weeks to go left of, um, you know, um, what are we going to call it? Pyongyang. Um, but the fact that we have uh, the US Open uh, is, I think, really going to make it fly by. And there's already been some uh, some really good tennis to watch. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good to uh, answer your question. That's How good. About yourself? <laughs> I'm all right, unless Dictator Dan does uh, move things along uh, another two weeks. So we'll go with that Pyongyang type theme. But um, no, it's been it's been a massive week of tennis, and we've got a lot to get through. Uh, Natalie Yanidis, um, former Fox Sports Journal freelance sports journalist extraordinaire, going to join us on the show. We're trying to track down Ben Rothenberg, who's in America at the moment. Reported that big news exclusively about Novak Djokovic, Vasek Pospisil, and John Isner splitting from the ATP and starting their own players' union. Um, plenty to get through on that front. But a quick wrap of Cincinnati, Joel, and we don't really need to spend overly much time on it, but it is a Masters 1000, even though there is a Grand Slam. That is still a pretty big tournament. So uh, Novak Djokovic getting through 1-6-6-3-6-4 over uh, Milos Raonic, becoming the first player ever to win a second Golden Masters, which is all the Masters 1000 events twice um, as a Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal fan, that does my head in big time, but um, we, <laughs> we digress. Um, on the women's side, Naomi Osaka withdrew from the final, injured with a left hamstring in, uh, injury, giving Victoria Azarenka her first title since Miami 2016. Alex Dimonor and Pablo Carreño Busta won the doubles title. Joel, how did this happen? How yeah. did this happen? I don't know. They defeated Jamie Murray and Neil <laughs> Skupski 6 2 7 wouldn't have picked his first doubles title to be a Masters 1000, but that's 2020 for you in the women's doubles. Alan Perez and Storm Sanders reached the quarterfinals, losing to third seeds Kveta Peshki and Demi Scherz 6-4-6-2. So both of those uh, ladies were guests on our show earlier on in the year, so it's great to see them doing well. But the US Open's kicked off this morning, Joel, and uh, the big seeds have gone through. The major upset was uh, ninth seed Diego Schwartzman. Uh, he is uh, he's out losing to Cam Norrie, 7-5 in the fifth. Won the first two sets. Norrie came back and uh, won the next three. Schwartzman having two match points in the fifth at 5-3 and at 5-4. So um, disappointing for him, but he cramped up majorly. What's been your take from the morning? Yeah, well, um, I guess the, the match that I got to watch the most of was uh, Novak Djokovic against... Damir Jumhur, that was uh, prime time on ESPN, as they say. Prime time on ESPN. Oh, God, how um, bad that is was, it? Uh, no, but... <laughs> yeah, I won't do that again, I promise. Um, <laughs> but, um, no, that was... Um, well, I mean, really, it was what we expected from Novak. I guess the uh, the the big, uh, I suppose, uh, observation in a Novak sense was we were waiting to see how that neck injury was going to affect him. And, well... Well, simply it didn't affect him at all because uh, he was really in, in cruise control from start to finish against Damir Jumhur. Maybe uh, in the second set, he was off the boil for, I don't know, maybe a 15-minute period, but no harm done. In the end, he got through it uh, as expected, and he's looking really good. And um, early days in the tournament just sort of reaffirmed uh, why he is the the raging favourite. But um, on the other side as well, on the women's side, Carolina Pliskova, um, we had, uh, you know, we spoke about the... the the, the doubts that we had about her um, going into this this US Open, and um, despite that, that it was her best chance to win a slam yet, um, cleared her first hurdle easily, six four six love. So uh, good for her. And um, yeah, unfortunately as well, I'm sure we'll touch on it in a minute. But uh, the uh, the Aussies didn't do overly well. <laughs> no, on the opening day only only one winner for us, Jordan Thompson. Yep, and look, it was a match that Jordan Thompson um, should have won, and he did win. So they're the, they're the matches that he will want to get under his belt and beating Stefano Travaglia of Italy in four sets. Uh, Mark Polmans was up 4-3 in the fourth set. Um, it was on serve, but he had it at 30-all against Marco Chiron um, and a real chance to go up 5-3 and serve for the match in the fourth, but Chiron getting through. Other Tomjanovic losing to Angie Kerber. Lizette Cabrera out to Duncan Kavinic. Astra Sharma heartbreakingly moments ago 
falling to yeah. uh, Diana Yastremska and Maddie English also falling in three against Magda Lynette. So those last three, Cabrera, Sharma and Inglis, all got sets off their opponents, um, which is disappointing um, not to see them go through, but great results for them. And I think they'll all be buoyed by by their performance and, and the fact that they can match it with a lot of the top players in this draw. So, um, you know, unfortunately, we only see one Aussie go through, but we've got Demonor, Duckworth um, and many more to come and Chris O'Connell to come tomorrow. So... Plenty to get through there, but um, yeah, it was. It's been a it's been a weird um weird morning. Dusan Lajovic out as well, another seed. So disappointing for him considering yeah. the start that he had. But I was watching a bit of um, I, I was up doing another interview and uh, Alex Zverev, Denis Shapovalov, and Stefano Tsitsipas were all playing at the same time, and I watched um bits and pieces of all three of those matches and. Tsitsipas looks in very ominous form. Unlucky to lose in Cincinnati last week. Alex Zverev. Uh, Kevin Anderson pushed him, really pushed him, had break points early in that yeah. third set and could have gone up two sets to one. Zverev normally, as Brad Gilbert called him, like a stone or has hands like a stone at the net, um, was hitting drop volley after drop volley and his net game was superb in that third set to win him um, the set and eventually the match. And then uh, Denis Shapovalov against Sebastian Korda. Korda's going to be a handy player when he um, when he gets a bit older, a son of Petter Korda, the 1998 Australian Open champion. Um, he played really well, and he's very young. He'll take a lot of positives off that. Shapovalov was just hitting some really clean winners towards the end of that match, winning 6-1 in the fourth. David Goffin, though, this was a surprising one. I thought Apelka was going to beat him in the opening round, but he got through in four. Um, does that set up his tournament at all and make him really dangerous or as sort of a quarterfinal prospect, maybe? Yeah, well, I don't know. I've, I guess I, I'm... As, as bad as it sounds, Val, I'm reluctant to really ever have too much confidence in, in David Goffin's game. Um, that said, though, I mean, from what we've seen of him this year, he's been pretty good. And I, I think, uh, well, one of the best wins that we've seen from him in his career, uh, certainly at the ATP Cup when he knocked off uh, Rafael Nadal. And the, the reason for that is because I'm just still not convinced that he has the weapons required to sort of go with the bigger guys. Um, but again, that said, um, this year we have seen glimpses of it. I think the interesting thing when you get a guy like David Goffin going up against a big service like a guy like like Riley Opelka, and and in the end after that second set, Riley Opelka was absolutely creaming his forehands. He looked more like Juan Martín del Potro the way he was hitting that forehand, and he won the second set six three. But after that, uh, David Goffin um, got the next two sets six one um, and six four. I, I think the great thing about a guy like David Goffin being a really good returner like like he is um, and the kind of player that he is. I think against those bigger guys, he's kind of not not quite at, at an advantage, but he's almost got the upper hand in the sense that he can use the power of the other guy um, you know, to his advantage to kind of make up for those uh, weapons that he, he may not necessarily have. He can just really use the power of the serve um, and just dictate the ball from, from the return. So I, I think that's one thing that's... Uh, that uh, David Goffin has going for him, certainly against those bigger servers. Yeah, he definitely can, and he reads the play so well, and that's where that's why he's done so well in his career. He does read those big servers well. He's kind of in that Djokovic, that Hewitt mould, where he can play those, and the Federer-Nadal mould as well. They're, they're some of the best, and Murray, can't forget him. They're some of the best returners in the game. So it's great to see him um, doing so well still. Um, I thought he might have been sort of, you know how those players get into the top 10 at the end of a season, randomly play the ATP finals like a Jack Sock or or like a, um, I think, yeah, yeah th- there's been a few over the years that have just played at once and then you've gone, oh, okay, they've played the World Tour finals and now they've dipped outside the top 20 the next <laughs> year. But Goffin has been there consistently and he's done a really good job of that. And I'll never forget in 2017, he beat Nadal in the group stage of the ATP finals. Then in the semifinals, he beat Roger and I'm still dirty on that, but um, we must move on. It's been three years. Got to get over it. Um, but he can play that sort of tennis that can get him into really good positions. And remember what he did against Australia in the Davis Cup semis back a few years ago. Um, he crushed our hopes and got Belgium to the final. And he's taken Belgium to two, mm. or th- I think two Davis Cup finals. So he's a very good player. And fingers crossed um, he can have a pretty good tournament because he's a likable guy as well. Um, but some more yeah. results from the tournament at the moment. It's been, um, I don't know, it's been kind of a very lackluster first day, I guess. Um, there hasn't really been many upsets to really speak of. Uh, I think yeah, not Schwar- really. Schwartzman 
and um, and Lajevic going out of the two probably most unexpected ones that that I've or that I saw anyway. But if we go to some of the completed matches and uh, where are we here? I've, I had the page up and great podcasting on our part here, um, and now it's gone. But <laughs> no, I've got it here now. It's all it's all good. We're good to go. Um, I think yeah, it's it's been fairly. Oh, the actually the one that did surprise me. Here we go. Um, and I knew I was forgetting one. Anastasia Sevastova over Coco Golf in the first round. If if you recall back to our uh, draw analysis show, I had Coco getting all the way to Coco Mo, um, which is the quarterfinals. <laughs> um, yeah, you that, did. You yeah, did. yeah. <laughs> is that the song? Um, the one that Shuey sings in Family Guy. Um, <laughs> oh. Oh, no, don't start. <laughs> I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Um, but, yeah, no, Sevastova, a U.S. Open semifinalist in 2018 and two-time quarterfinalist in 17 and 16 as well. So she plays well on the fast courts at uh, the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. Annette Contivate with a big win over Danielle Collins as well. Uh, Collins winning the first set 7-5, but uh, Contivate 6-2, 6-2. So that's a tough win and a tough first-round matchup. Kyle Edmund was set up his, uh, his second-round clash with um with Novak Djokovic, that's a good win over Alexander Bublik, who can play really attractive tennis. Um, Bublik won the first set six two seven five seven five in the next two for Edmund, and then six love in the fourth for the Brit. Petra Matic getting through. I didn't think she'd get too far, but um she's she's still in the tournament, and she won over um, Martinkova of uh, the Czech Republic seven five oh, five seven six two six four. Uh, Joel, your best mate, Adrian Manorino, is through 6-1, over Lorenzo Sonego. Um, Arena Rodianova also out. We forgot to include. We, we kind of always forget Arena Rodianova when we talk about the Australians. <laughs> we actually do, yeah. And it, it's not good. But I didn't, to be honest, I didn't even see her name in the draw. <laughs> Um, so that's, um, that shows how much I'm paying attention, but she lost to Madison Bringle 6-2, 6-2, Hubert Hercash through the match that, Another one that um, really perplexed me was the win for uh, Marta Kostiuk over Daria Kasatkina, 6-1, 6-2. She smashed her. Yeah. Absolutely smashing. Yeah. We, we, we spoke a bit about this one a bit um, off air, Val, before we started, uh, before we started recording. Like, you know, it, it, clearly, clearly there's something up with... Uh, with Dario Casacchino because uh, really before this year and probably the end of last year, she was playing some really good tennis, but just hasn't quite been able to hit those same heights. And, you know, we, we think that, that there must be something at play there, maybe an injury um, because uh, yeah, I mean, she was, she, she was quite high in the rankings. I don't know quite how high off the top of my head, but, it was high enough for a seating as I, as I remember it at, at one point. She's so, been, I think she's yeah, been in the top 10 before Joel. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly, yeah. Hmm. So, look, yeah, disappointing. Um, but I guess, you know, the thing that, that uh, Dara Kaskina has going for her is that she's still very young. I don't think we can forget that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think as well it's it's important that, um, you know, even that even though she has been at the heights, even even someone like Coco Goff, I, I still think we sort of have to remember that occasionally, um, you know, we, we maybe need to temper expectations to a, to an extent, certainly with someone as young as, as, young as Coco because she will – have hiccups she is still just 16 years old and you know we don't want to sort of feeling the, the the weight of expectation too early and there actually was a point earlier in the year where she actually opened up about that weight of expectation and, mm. and said that um you know at a point she had lost um a little bit of, of the love for for the sport because of i guess all that attention and and all these things that people were expecting from her but um yeah look i think uh yeah clearly not the result that she wanted at this this us open losing to Anastasia Savastova, but um, you know, I've got no doubt that, that you know she'll be back, and it's just a just a hiccup still very early in her career. Yep, exactly right, and I think um, it, and that's the problem I think with young athletes that they're going to get this expectation on them. We've seen it um, with Bernard Tomic, we've seen it with Nick Kyrgios, Tanasi Kokonakis, and all of them have kind of Kokonakis through no fault of his own with injuries, um, but Kyrgios and Tomic have gone through some massive controversy in their career as did Mark Philippoussis, as did Leighton Hewitt. So it does happen a lot over over time with young prodigies. And, um, you know, it's disappointing that they, they have to go through that because we want to see them succeed and we don't want them to go through any sort of um, mental upheaval like that at such a young age. But unfortunately, it's kind of, 
part and parcel of life when you are an athlete and when you are a young athlete that that does well. Um, there is there is that um, asterisk next to your name that you must do well, and it's disappointing. So fingers crossed we can see the best of her. And Marta Kostiuk, I think, has had the same thing. She's only very young. She made the third round of the Australian Open as a 15-year-old back in 2018. So... Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's you know it's it's difficult, and Osaka is the same. Osaka said the same thing. She won a Grand Slam at what nineteen? So you know, I think we've 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 got to cut them a little bit of slack at that age. Speaking of uh, slack, there's a fifteen year old in the draw. I wanted to speak to Ben Rothenberg about this, but uh, Rebecca Montgomery, um, or Robin Montgomery. Sorry, I do do her a little bit of disrespect. Robin Montgomery ranked five hundred ninety third in the world, and she is uh, she's uh, currently in action now. So we won't give you any sort of a score. We'll hopefully track down Ben Rothenberg, who is watching this match, um, and hopefully get him on the show as well. But um, yeah, it's yeah, it's been a good start. But look, we must get to the controversy, Joel. We've gone through the results. The controversy is, and unfortunately. It's Benoit. It's our man. It's our favourite player, or one of our favourite players, Benoit Pair. He's tested positive to COVID-19, the US Open confirming that, and then a few players confirming it along the way. But the real controversy is that it's been confirmed that he has had 11 close contacts since he has been in the bubble and over the time. And they're the ones that now are under massive threat of their US Open being completely derailed and then being forfeited from the tournament, which is a disaster for the USTA. But the problem is, the rules were, if you're a close contact, you've got to isolate for 14 days and you can't play the US Open. From Noah Rubin and the Behind yeah. the Racket podcast, he's revealed uh, yesterday that these players or these 11 close contacts have now been made to sign a document saying that they are on, they are in isolation within isolation yet still allowed to be at the USTA, at the Billie Jean King Tennis Centre grounds to play in the US Open. And this has caused a, and there are a few expletives from Noah Rubin in this podcast, which yeah. rightly so, because the USTA are trying, and they've gone against, they're trying to get this all sorted, but they're going against the New York State Health Services advice. And this isn't what we want. We want everything to be, we want it to, all be just as simple as they're not playing. Doesn't matter who they are, because one of these players is Daniel Medvedev, who practiced with Pair before the tournament. So this is this is a bit of a disaster, Joel. And I'm not sure what you think of the um of the situation, but I'm I'm really disappointed with the USTA because I think I think they need to be taking a strong stance. Yeah, look, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, I can see why they. And they would be so reluctant to withdraw a guy like you know Medvedev. But having said that, I mean, you, you, we have to, we have to really think back to um, when uh, Hugo Dalian and Guido Payas physio um, tested positive, and uh, you know, seemingly at that moment there was another new set of rules. Um, so you know, I, yeah, I think after that was announced, and uh, Noah Noah Rubin said said what he said, and um, you know, we heard about the the waiver. I, th- I think what's concerning is that uh, we've seen two instances now where what was agreed to has been um, not not so much not so much ignored, but it's been we've mo- they've moved the USTA has moved away from what was agreed to, um, and I, I think that's really alarming. And the fact that uh, you know there's these been these allowances made uh, in a situation as as delicate. As as COVID nineteen, we know how quickly the fire can spread. Um, it is it is a bit of a worry, um, and you know I think as well. What, what's concerning for me is that um, you know in the in the statement that was released by the USTA, uh, they said that the player who we now understand is Ben my pair was asymptomatic. But thinking back to Cincinnati, his match against Borna Torric, he walked in absolute. All sorts. Yeah. Lost the first set six love and then retired at one love. Yeah. Didn't win a game. Second set. He. Yeah. Didn't win a game. He was not himself. He was just. Well, actually, I won't say he wasn't himself because I think this is the reason why maybe a lot of people would have been a bit dismissive of it because it was Benoit Pair. We know that's why we have a segment called Benoit of the Week, Joe. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. We know. We know he can be a bit lackadaisical, but like in 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 this kind of situation, the fact that he was just completely off off the boil, like. 
I'm, I am a little bit surprised, and sure, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I am a little bit surprised that it wasn't taken a bit more seriously because, you know, we saw we saw in Atlanta Francis Tiafoe on court was 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 quite unwell, Grigor Dimitrov as well, um, earlier in in the year, um, and you, you know, it's funnily funnily enough, Borna Saric has been involved in a lot of this as well, so I kind of feel sorry for him in that sense, but um, you know, I guess it's another it's another instance of have we. Have the the relevant people truly learned the, the lessons that we have been offered in the in the few months that tennis has dealt with COVID nineteen? And you know, at the moment, you'd have to say that the answer is probably no. Yeah, no, it's 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 a bit of a disaster, bit of a disaster. And Alan Perez summed it up really well last night. So she said a um she sent out a few tweets, and the first of which was, "I chose to come to the U.S. Open over Prague's 125k as I fancied my chances of playing singles as a third alternate because I knew positive tests and close contacts would cause issues. But here we go again with the rule changes. If I knew that anyone could play, I'd not be here trying my luck. Also, would like to state that I do not agree that doubles players should be alternates. I know many of you will say STFU. I shouldn't, and that means shut the f up. Um, I shouldn't even be yeah. in consideration." <laughs> And I agree, but when you make the rules and players' decisions are based around these rules, they need to hold true, shaking my head. And then another um, another thought uh, that she typed that was too long for Twitter, so she sent a screenshot. The new protocols and procedures are misleading, disrespectful, and wrong. You're sending the message you can be as cl- a close contact to a positive person and be fine to play and be around others. How can one week you enforce the correct strict rules and the next week you, uh, you don't? Um, you run a dangerously thin line with this. If any of those contacts, uh, close contacts turn back an eventual positive test after having played, I hope everyone takes action, uh, action upon these reckless and dangerous protocols. This isn't a game. You spend so much money on trying to ensure the safety of players and then get to a crucial moment where leadership is required and you let us down. And Alan Perez has summed this up perfectly. And um, yeah, fantastic tweets. Yeah. And it, it's 100% right. It's a disaster. And they have let the players down because people are there based on what the previous information uh, what the previous information was from the USTA and all the information provided and all the protocols that they were given. Everything that they've had to adhere to is now out the door. What's the point of having a bubble? Because... Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. where, where's, why are we in a bubble if we're not adhering to these protocols? The players, were, like the Hugo Dalian stuff and and the Guido Payer, um, the Guido Payer controversy last week, they were banned from Cincinnati, which was strict. But uh, uh, look, I don't know. I don't know. It's, uh, they, they they could be very close yeah. for Benoit of the week. To be quite honest, very close for Benoit of the week. It's yeah, just the, yeah, definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Again, yeah. The, the most, I think, the most disappointing thing, Val, is that uh, you know we, we understand that you know the tennis economy, and we keep using that that term, needs a guy like Daniel Medvedev to feature at a at a Grand Slam. But what's most disappointing is that the rules just continue to shift. The goalposts just keep changing, and mm-hmm. in a situation like what we're going through at the moment, that just you, we just cannot allow that. It doesn't matter who it is. The you know the virus is the virus. It doesn't discriminate, and um, yeah, I think that's the most disappointing thing for me. Yep, agree, 100%. And should we get to Ben Rothenberg, Joel? Because we want to chat about this Novak uh, PTPA, the players' union, that he split from the ATP. Um, he broke the story on the New York Times last week, so let's chat to him about uh, about what's happened in uh, in New York. And Joel, we've been able to track him down. He's a very, very busy man over there in uh, in America. He can't be at uh, the Billie Jean King Tennis Center, but we have tracked him down. He's just watched Robin Montgomery, um, unfortunately, fall to Yulia Putintseva, the host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast, with uh, himself and Courtney Newen, and also extraordinaire writer for the New York Times. It's Ben Rothenberg. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Extraordinary is a big word, but but thank you, Val. You are very, very welcome. Nah, you're extraordinary for coming on the show, so that's the least we could do for uh, for uh, for doing this favour for us. But um, thank you very much for joining us, and it's been a busy day for you at the US Open. Um, started well, uh, I think, well in the night in uh, in our time here at about two a.m. But uh, it's nearly it's nearly about one o'clock now, so it's been um, been a big day for you. But tell us about uh, Robin Montgomery. Just watch her, fifteen years old. You did a piece on her for the New York Times, and uh, unfortunately, she's just gone down to Yulia Putintseva. Just tell us about the match six one six three, and um, 
Played well in the second set to get a break, but unfortunately the Kazakh just ran over the top. Yeah, I think this was a, a rough matchup for any sort of starter. I think Putin's was such a, a tough out for anybody. He's just a dogged competitor and doesn't really give anything away for free. And I think when you're used to playing juniors, I think it, or even lower level, she won a 25K in her just before the coronavirus stoppage came. Uh, you get a lot more stuff for free at those levels. And so it's a very, very sort of tough match. She did well to, to mix things up, to change things. Um, but it was clear kind of early on that she just didn't have Quite the consistency. She did. She did problem solve and find some levels. She yeah. She got down five zero pretty quickly in the first set, and so it was looking pretty grim. But then, like you said, yeah, she got up three one in the second. So that was a, that was positive for her to get some momentum and some some. She'll remember that positive. Even even I think a lot of people's minds work that way, especially when you're new. You can sort of you know replay only the part of the match that went well for you and, and delude yourself into thinking that hey, if I you know won on a run of three games against her, why can't I win a whole match? And that's that's not totally bad thinking um but yeah just even in in her loss i think she showed a lot of huge natural gifts she's a big tall strong lefty um only 15 years old uh, very athletic very just very great build you can tell already even at 15 um so there's a lot to like there uh undercooked more than she would have been obviously with the stoppage of the tour missed some meaningful competition she probably would have played more junior slams or maybe even some qualities of some of the the adult slams. So yeah, rough break for her, but a uh, lot to look forward to for in the future. So name, name to remember. Just on, on Robin, uh, Ben, uh, love, love your yarn in the, uh, in the NY times. And this is a great little, a little passage that I picked out from it where she says, my next goal was to break through the pros, play some 25 Ks and hopefully get some wild cards into the bigger tournaments. Then hopefully I have an outbreak. And then you've written with a wide, a wide sheepish smile. Montgomery then corrected herself to break out. She sounds yeah. like a just a really bubbly kind of character as well, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She said out. She said outbreak, and we all sort of looked at her. There, me and a couple. I think one of other people who works at the academy or somebody. I forget who was there in the room in Melbourne. But yeah, um, yeah. She she doesn't take herself too seriously. She she's uh, a, a, seems like a pretty fun kid. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of pressure being in a Grand Slam match too. I mean, you know, this is something she's been looking forward to her whole life. So doesn't always have this necessarily she looked more stressed than she did obviously most other times when she's playing her first every year of match but that's completely natural um yeah i i think that coco golf uh, and the success she had in the last year or so uh really gave a lot of young players the the encouragement that hey we can start achieving things younger in our careers there have been this sort of maxim that you can't have teen successes anymore and women's or even men's tennis. And I think that golf maybe re-sparks the imagination. So I don't know how that's going to pan out with Montgomery in terms of being a super early bloomer, the way that golf has been, although golf did lose today also. But, uh, but yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's exciting to see these, these young players. And it's too bad that she didn't get a crowd to play in front of it her first slam, but she'll get a new first, hopefully to look forward to next year, assuming everything is back to normal in 12 months, which gosh, I hope it is. Fingers, well, fingers crossed. It's um, things are starting to kind of, kind of get a little bit better here in, in Melbourne, but it's we're Good. just we're just not sure. It can it can change in the yeah. in the flip of a coin, which we have seen many many times in 2020. But uh, Novak Djokovic, you broke this story last week in the New York Times. He, Vasek Pospisil, and John Isner uh, have formed a players' union, which is separate from the ATP Players Council and. Their aim is to look after players in a little bit better manner from all the lower-ranked players that aren't getting looked after at the moment um, in lieu of what the ATP is doing. It's sort of been a little bit lack of... Uh, the, had a bit of lack of organisation in 2020, which is pretty widely documented. But the timing has been very controversial and it's been reneged by a lot of other top players because of the timing in a time where we do need to show unity. So tell us a little bit about more of what Djokovic is planning to do and what's, uh, and for the people that haven't heard um, and what Vasek and John Isner have to do with it as well. Yeah, so those are three members of the ATP Player Council who all have resigned, or we've told were resigning to, in order to form this pretty breakaway sort of group, this defection from the ATP Tour governance as we know it. ATP Tour, for those who don't know, is a, was conceived as a combination joint body between the tournament's on the ATP Tour and the players, which was originally the ATP, the Association of Tennis Professionals. So they merged in 1990, 30, 30 years ago now. Uh, and this is sort of a push towards them separating again um, in, a, in a sort of divorce. And, you know, it, it's this debate about whether or not that's smart or not, whether or not it's better to have an adversarial structure um, and have people purely fighting just for player rights that can negotiate with the tour. I will say the unknown for this is, and the scary part about it, if I was a player, is that they just don't know what kind of seat at the table they're going to get, right? Unless they are prepared to be like a normal union and have leverage, which means striking, which means threatening to stop your workforce. You don't have leverage. 
And then why would anyone sit down with you and give you more money or give you more rights or power if, you, if you're not willing to pull that trigger? Um, so I do think they ha will have some, I think they'll be tested. I think that the uh, ATP and the other governing bodies, the other seven, with seven total uh, governing bodies, I'll put out a joint statement saying basically we stand by the ATP and we don't really appreciate this, this PTPA situation, Professional Tennis Players Association. And yeah, they, uh, and so they might have a tough time. I mean, I could easily see them just being stonewalled for a long time until maybe they're willing to ramp things up and, and to threaten some sort of meaningful boycott and maybe even do a meaningful boycott. Maybe they'll call them on their way. And we haven't seen tennis players really, I mean, it's easy to post for a picture. If it can feel kind of low risk in this moment in New York, like, Hey, we're all going to go to grandstand and take a picture of the, you know, Saturday before they open, like, Oh, sure. I, I'll wear my mask and take a picture and people won't really be sure who I am is look at the picture. And it's a little bit weird how it's anonymous somewhat. This picture is supposed to show support. Like, like, is that, he wears Yonix. Okay. Who is that guy back there? Yeah. It, it's a, uh, <laughs> It's it's a it's a weird moment in a lot of ways, but uh, yeah, I I think that there's still a lot of unknowns in terms of what kind of how ride or die these these guys will prove to be in terms of when the going gets tougher, and what kind of resistance the the, the tour and the tournaments will will put up in its face because I, I think that they yeah this is, it's a big paradigm shift it's, it's pretty backroom stuff in a lot of ways I think people don't really care and I appreciate that it's very differently I can speak from a North American sports perspective much better there's and an NBA has a players association NFL has a players association they do collective bargaining um, to, to get contracts and terms and everything and tennis has never had that tennis is these sort of cooperative terms set and it's supposed to be 50 50 but there have been times when the players have felt like their point of void reps have not been as gung over them or as uh, resolute as they want them to be and it flex including your Aussie Roger Rashid who was uh, deemed to be uh, insufficiently loyal to player causes and was booted a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of militants in it, militancy in it uh, from uh, from the Djokovic wing and the Pospisil wing, which is formerly the Gimelstab wing. And I'm, I'm mm -hmm. a lot curious if he, how much he's still involved in this. And I do not have the answer to that. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting time, an interesting sort of uh, declaration of uh, – War feels like a strong term, but a declaration of uh, of uh, unpleasantries. I say that. Yeah, I think maybe the the jury's probably still out a bit on it, Ben. I think, but um, I guess in terms of what's happened, do you think that um, and it is editorializing a little bit, but do you think that what happened with uh, say Hugo Dalian and Guido Paya in Cincinnati may have, uh, I suppose, fast tracked this concept because it does seem like something that uh, wouldn't necessarily have sparked it because it obviously needs some thought behind it. But yeah. do you think it maybe brought it forward a bit? I think it was ammunition for them. I don't think it. I don't think it started it, but it was something they could certainly point to. Be like, hey, here's another chance where our guys are getting screwed. And you know, I think actually, you no, know, Djokovic in his letter to the players, I think, also pointed to the stoppage that happened with the protests that was led by Osaka as another moment of, hey, like male players were not consulted about this. How dare they? Let's get indignant about this. And you know, there are certainly times. I don't necessarily. I'm not too sympathetic to either. I'm not too sympathetic to either of those moments, honestly. But the the one that I was super sympathetic towards, and I talked to Bostic possibly about this last year. Was it last year? Yeah, just last year, when uh, obviously Bernard Tomic played Wimbledon, and they took away all his prize money because they thought he didn't give it a big enough effort uh, in the match, and they only decided that after the match, and they didn't give him any lack of warning uh, code violation during the match. I thought that was ridiculous. I, I thought it was ridiculous that you could, after the match, and decide, hey, you know, we didn't like that. Let's take away all your money. I think that's from a labor perspective. That's like classic to get technical wage. Labor terms, that's like classic wage theft. You can't just have someone do a job and then decide you're not going to pay them for some arbitrary reason afterwards. So that's that's that was a moment where I absolutely saw a huge moment for a rallying cry, even if Bernard is not the most sympathetic <laughs> character in a lot of ways. Uh, I think on paper, that case is ridiculous. And yeah, that, that kind of thing can be galvanizing. And, you know, it's really vague right now what the PTPA can and can't do. So they're kind of going to grasp at everything. They're basically going to say, if you have a problem, PTPA is going to solve it. Like, oh, you don't like the food in, in the player restaurant? PTPA. If you want bigger pension? PTPA. If you think that, you know, you should be able to break more rackets on court? PTPA. Like, they're going to throw everything at it just to get votes now, which is vague. And the promise of being intentionally vague, I think, is part of it. So that's another reason for awareness. I, I haven't asked about this, but the part about not including women, I think it's also a weird choice because mm. because it's so vague. Like, it's so undefined, but they know they don't want women. And that struck me as a weird move by them because I think that would have been considered a, symbolically 
a huge thing. If there was a joint effort that would have gotten it such better reaction people. And I think at least in America, obviously people see it being framed as the men are forming a union. And many of these same men have been complaining about the women on tour for a while. The optics and that don't look good. How much of it is a reaction to the merge talk that happened earlier this during the stoppage about, Hey, Federer thinks the tourists maybe should merge and how much of this is a backlash to that. Yeah. It's, it's uh, there's a lot there and a lot to unpack still. And we'll see how it, how it all builds or, or fizzles. Yep, exactly. And look, I feel as though this is a time for unity. So this might not be the best time to do this. And Roger and Rafa both echoed those sentiments as well. And Noah Rubin even said on a podcast yesterday um, with uh, Mike Cation saying that the ATP sent a text halfway through this meeting, uh, sending a few bullet points about, um, you know, what to be wary of with these guys. So obviously it is scaring them, which is, um, I guess another story, but we do have to let you go because you, we do have a you do have a lot to get through today, Ben. But um, uh, just quickly before we do let you go, U.S. Open yeah. winners, men's and women's, who have you got? Oh God, <laughs> is Osaka winning her match? I, I mean, I, she's she would be my pick before she got hurt. So yeah. as of like mid last week, I would have confidently said Osaka. She's losing a second set. Uh, okay, asterisk this if it in the classic U.S. Open asterisk conversation already, but asterisk if she loses this match or this even the set, or looks hurt. But my pick is Osaka for the women, I think. Yep. Uh, not been impressed by Serena, who's always a classic default pick. She has not looked good, honestly, in 2020. No. Uh, even before the stoppage. She's, I think she's 2-3 and three against the top 50, so I don't want to pick her at the moment, um, which is not something I usually say. And then for the men, Djokovic. I mean, he looked he looked good today against Schumer. Um, no signs for wear and tear of last week's uh, play. He's the only person who had to play both Saturday and Monday, the shortest turnaround of anybody. Um, but he's... He's incredibly resilient, that guy. And so he's, uh, yeah, he's still at it 24 0 in the year. It's hard to pick against, uh, pick against Djokovic. So those are, I think, relatively safe picks. But yeah, nice. I think we're, we're kind of on the same. I've got Kvitova winning, but Joel has Osaka mm. and Novak. So it's, um, it's yeah. all pretty similar at the moment. Maybe Djokovic has gone down to the East River and purified some water down there and, uh, and been able to. <laughs> I made a few of these jokes today. I probably better stop. But, um, uh, uh, Ben keep Roth. Him coming, keep him coming. <laughs> well, I just don't know if the East River is in the bubble. I think you might have to go. Um, <laughs> well, he's staying at some sort of like, I think it's sort of more on the water, more on the Atlantic, I guess. Today. Okay. So it's salt water. Um, you never know. You can purify that, yeah. I guess, with positive thoughts. <laughs> Um, ben Rothenberg, thank you so much for joining us. You can tune into Ben's work at the New York Times over the next two weeks and, and beyond that, and also no challenges remaining with himself and Courtney Nguyen. It's a great podcast. And uh, tune in if, uh, if you've listened to us, listen to them as well. So uh, thanks very much, Ben, and stay safe in, uh, in Washington and uh, enjoy the Open. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Joel. Joel, our next special guest on today's show is someone, well, that can do it all in terms of media. She's covered AFL, cricket, NRL, rugby union, and tennis. And her name is Natalie Yanides, formerly of Fox Sports, but freelance sports uh, journalist extraordinaire. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us here on Breakpoint Podcast. Great to have you on. Val, if you're going to introduce me like that every time, I'm going to be coming on as much as humanly possible. That was an excellent introduction. <laughs> we've had we've had a few people say that to us this year, so I will take that. Um, I'll take that one. Um, but first things first, how's um how's everything going with COVID? And um, you're a Melbourneian like us, so how are you handling it all? I've seen on your socials that you've been making a lot of um, chicken palmers, so that's been looking quite fun. <laughs> It's literally the only thing that's getting us through at the moment. My housemate and I, obviously, we're not allowed to see anybody else. So we've been having our um, Palmer challenges on Saturday night. We take it in turns. So last week it was uh, my turn and I did it like a veal parmigiana. And this week he's up and he's talking about doing something really bizarre with fondue and chicken parmigiana. And I don't know how it's going to go. But uh, stay tuned because it could be very interesting. I, I can assure you it's going to be delicious. I just don't know how it's going to happen just yet. So we keep, yes. we're keeping ourselves occupied, but at least we've got a little bit of sport to, to keep us interested as well because the first time we were locked down, we had absolutely nothing to do. Oh, no. So this is a nice change. Yeah, it definitely is. And Joel and I were both going stir crazy in the first lockdown because there was literally like we were just trying to figure out any bit of tennis that we could talk about and then the Adria tour happened. So we were just like, you know what? Perfect. Let's just run with that. Um, but now we actually do have some matches and we have a grand slam to talk about. But first things first, you covered the Australian Open this year for Fox Sports. How it's TV is something that I, I've covered two Australian Opens for print, but TV is something that's 
on absolute steroids. Um, the production that goes into it is is ridiculous, and the amount of hours that a lot of the TV journos do are unbelievable, and the players wouldn't even understand what the TV journos would be doing. So talk us through your experiences doing it for Fox and how um, the challenges and also the sort of the, the bonuses and the benefits that you get from doing it. Oh, it's one of my absolute favourite events, doing the Australian Open. I mean, I've always been involved in tennis from the time I was about five. I played tennis. I was a ball kid at two Australian Opens, I think it was. So, like, I've always been really involved. So, it's pretty easy to get up and about for, for such a big international event like that. I guess the hardest thing is that when you are sort of trying to cover everything and you, you're stuck in Melbourne, so your main sport is AFL, um, getting your head around names and things like that, just going through the, the top 100 for the men and the women and sitting there thinking, okay, that person was not there last time. Where have they come from? What have they done? Um, so just getting your head around like the volume of players and some of the names, particularly those Eastern European names, uh, is probably the most difficult thing. And because there is just so much, you can't just sit down and watch one match and say, okay, I'm over it. I'm, I've, I've covered it. Um, I know exactly what's going on. I can go do a cross about this. It's trying to keep your head around uh, everything that's been going on, on all the outside courts, on all the show courts. Um, but it is one of the most fulfilling things you could possibly cover and probably two of the best weeks of the year, in my personal opinion. Yeah, don't even get us started on those uh, Eastern European names. We tried last week with um, Camille Mojak. Yeah, Special K. We've uh, we've been reduced to calling it. Well, I have anyway. Val got it right last night. I, I'm still no chance. I'm, I'm not even close. But um, I mean, funnily enough, Sophia Kennan, uh, actually, of course, the well, the carryover uh, win. Grand Slam champion, really, if we want to call her that. Um, of course, has that Russian background, but um, representing the United States. Did you have much to do with her, um, uh, I guess, after she won uh, the, the Slam earlier in the year? Because she seems really like a this really kind of bubbly, upbeat character, and it, it was refreshing to see someone new uh, win, the, win the Women's Slam as well. Oh, absolutely right. It's always so interesting when you see these young kids coming through, and I guess that that's one of the one of the advantages that we might see at this US Open, particularly on the men's side of the draw, because if Novak does somehow get knocked out a little bit earlier, we're probably going to see one of those young guys, that next generation, come through. So we're going to see some new personalities. Um, as far as Sophia Kennan goes, I actually went to – usually they do a press conference for the winner – the day after, the morning after. So I went out to that and they, they dress them up in really fancy clothes and get the champagne out. It's usually somewhere down at the Yarra. The photographers tried to find an angle that doesn't make the Yarra look so brown and disgusting. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I went to that press conference um, with her. And you're, you're right, it is so refreshing to, to hear someone who isn't necessarily so perfectly media trained who doesn't come out and with an idea in mind of exactly the point that they want to get across. So that was nice. I thought that the interesting thing about her, though, was the relationship with her father, with her camp, with her family. I thought it was very, um, I don't want to say typical, but, you know, we have seen a lot of that with Eastern European players in the past. Maria Sharapova in particular comes to mind where they do have that very strong relationship with their with their team and they really look to them for a lot of support. So that was the, the opinion that I sort of got of Sophia Kennan. But like you said, so refreshing to, to actually have someone who's, you know, genuinely excited, just genuinely so happy to have seen hours and years of work, of preparation, of dedication really come to fruition by winning their first ever Grand Slam. Yeah, it was great. And now I understand, Joel, why Novak does all of his press conferences near the Yarra uh, after he wins, after the oh, no. after the purified water <laughs> scandal at the start of the year. It's all, it all makes sense. Uh, but talking about like highlights from from covering the Australian Open, what's what's the best moment that you've been involved in as a journalist um, at the Oz Open or in tennis in general? Um, that's an interesting one. I think that most of the time it's just, particularly when you do the Australian Open, it's always fun to see these young Aussie kids come through. I think Alexi Popperin we had mm. uh, was it a couple of years ago when he went on that run at the Australian Open. That was incredibly exciting. So just seeing the young guys come through and, and really 
you know, even if it is only for the first week, match it with some of those bigger name players. I think that that's the most fulfilling thing. I mean, I know Ash made the, the final last year or didn't quite, well, she didn't quite get through uh, to the final. Sorry, she made the semifinals. Um, and, you know, it was not, it was fun to watch that run as well. But these young kids that you don't really know a lot about and all of a sudden the whole of Australia is getting around them, going to outside courts, watching them, you know, do their thing out on court 17 or whatever it is. Um, and all of a sudden the great thing about the Australian Open is that everyone becomes a, a, um, a professional. Everybody becomes an expert for those two weeks <laughs> oh, over the summer. Everybody knows about tennis and everyone knows everything about Alexi Popperin and uh, Jordan Thompson and Alex Demonor and all those kinds of guys. Um, but I just love watching the way the Australian public does get behind these young kids who they'd never heard of before, but all of a sudden they're their biggest fans. Yeah, it's great. And I think, I think now one of the great things about the Australian Open um, is, and I'm sure Val could speak to this as well, is going on the outside courts and you get kind of the lower-ranked players or you get the Australians and it's just a complete free-for-all. There's no, there's no suits in the, in the big league seats. It's just, you know, average Joes like, like you know, everyone. Um, and it's, it's just great when, you know, if it goes into five sets and the whole thing just, just goes off. And I guess watching the US Open now, that's probably one of the things that, um, I'm certainly really missing. It's the fact that there's there is no one there, and um, I guess in the last few months we have got used to sport without uh, without fans or with minimal fans anyway. Um, so I guess how are you finding not only the US Open but I guess just sport in general with uh, that that absence of of that energy that that supporters bring. I mean, it's weird. Let, let's face it. I think that mm. most people would agree that the fans, a lot of the time, is what makes the sport. It's just the passion and the way that people do get around their sporting teams or their sporting heroes, whoever it may be. Um, and let's be fair, it gives you an advantage, particularly when you're at home. I mean, even just watching uh, the way West Coast have played in Perth in the AFL compared to the way they play in Queensland is just so different. And I think that the crowd probably does have quite a lot to do with that, just feeding off their energy. Um, it's not the same, but at least we do have something. I think that I think in the US Open they're allowed to have about 15 people or something in the stands, which are mostly just journalists and um, coaches and whatnot. So it's, it's, it's not the same, but it also means that it probably is going to open it up to um, players that wouldn't necessarily have the home ground advantage or the home court advantage and uh, are able to feed off that that energy from the fans. So it, it's lacking, but hopefully in 12 months' time we are going to see, you know, fans return to stadiums. I know it's happening here in Australia, obviously not in Melbourne just yet, but we are going to have fans hopefully at the cricket when the cricket rolls around and then when the Australian uh, Open does start, yes, there might be limited crowds but we are going to have some people there so we are going to have a little bit of atmosphere and with an event like the Australian Open like the US Open that's really what makes it particularly given you have so many different nationalities so many people from different parts of the world supporting their tennis their tennis stars um, their sporting stars it's one of the things that really makes it quite unique so hopefully we do see a few fans because it's not the same but we do at least have some sport so we've got to be grateful for that. Yeah, you're exactly right there. You are 100% right. But it does seem unfathomable that we're going to have an Australian Open with limited crowds. How do you see that looking? Like, do you, do you see it on centre court, just every second seat is is spare? Or do you think it's going to be even less than that? It's hard to say, isn't it? I think that they're probably going to do as much as they can to get to full capacity. Obviously, we've had a, a huge setback here in Melbourne where we haven't really had anything going on for... I think it's just over 50 days now. So what's that? Nearly two months. Hopefully by the time January rolls around, we're not going to have international fans. I'd be very, very surprised if we have any international fans. But we are still going to have people in Melbourne Park or hopefully if things go to plan, we're still going to have people at Melbourne Park, not the hundreds of thousands that we have seen in the past. I mean, that first Saturday of the Australian Open is in my opinion, probably the best day of the whole tournament always has been as far as getting a ground pass and just sitting out in the beer garden goes. Um, It's not going to be exactly the same, but we are still going to get enough of an atmosphere to, to sort of enjoy the fact that there are fans there and really building off that energy. Yeah. Agree. Fingers crossed that we do get something because it it would be a real shame, but 
steering away from tennis very quickly, what's the best sport that you've covered? Um, you can say tennis if you like on the tennis podcast. Yes. But, um, <laughs> yeah, what is the best and the one that's given you the most excitement over your career? Oh, that's a hard one. I think that uh, most of the time the big events, it doesn't really matter what it is as long as it's a big event. So earlier in the year I covered the, the Women's Cricket World Cup, um, covered the final at the MCG, and that was an amazing spectacle. That was so much fun um, to cover that and, you know, to see what the girls achieved after, you know, such a long period of time being, you know, basically the best team in the world to do it at home in front of 88,000 fans, which was, I think, one of the last times we had that many people uh, in a stadium here in Melbourne, that's for sure. So I think it's just covering those big events, Um Grand final, AFL grand final, grand final parade is always a lot of fun. Um, and then I'm a little bit biased. I love my rugby. So anything to do with the Bledisloe. I went over to New Zealand last year um, and covered the second Bledisloe test, the deciding Bledisloe test between the Wallabies and the All Blacks and at Eden Park. And that was an incredible experience. We got absolutely thumped. But it was, you know, fun to, to see of the way that the Kiwis get around their team and um, just really enjoy the cauldron that is Eden Park, such a famous stadium. I'd love to do Wimbledon. I'd yeah. love to do Wimbledon. It's on my bucket list and I'd love to do an Olympics. So I'm going to to reserve my judgment until I do eventually get to do some of those huge events. But because I think that they'll probably top it, but at the moment it's just, you know, the likes of your grand finals, your world cup finals, and of course your Bledisloe cups as well. Those big international events. Wimbledon is an absolute mechanat. I love it there. It's such, such a great place. Wish I could go back and actually uh, watch, watch the tennis again. But speaking of (laughs) other sports, I know you're a big, uh, you're a big Bombers fan like myself. Yeah. Uh, so a question, question for the Australian-based audience. How are we going tonight against oh, West Coast? Uh, you know what? I completely forgot that they were playing until today. But <laughs> I've, got a, I've got a calendar written down. I've got a calendar with all the games that Essendon are playing, like all my teams in all the different sports, Melbourne Storm. And I was like, oh, I didn't realise Essendon were playing. And then I realised it was because I'd accidentally put it down on the wrong day. I thought they were playing tomorrow oh. night. And I don't know. I want to say that I, that West Coast are going to continue their terrible form in Queensland, and distra- and uh, Essendon are going to get um, be a sneaky chance tonight. I don't know though, because unfortunately, the last few weeks it's just been which Essendon is going to show up. Is it going to be the one that actually tries, or is it going to be the one that we saw in that first half against Hawthorne that? game against St Kilda which was probably the worst game of the season but heaps of good players back this week so it's great to see the skipper back Dyson Heppel uh, I think Michael Hurley's playing as well so uh, a couple of big names and Kale Hooker's 200th game so uh, I'm hoping that that gives them enough enough motivation to, to get up their finals hopes are on the line you think if they don't get this one then it's probably going to be all over I'm not overly confident but I'm still going to pencil it in and hopefully at least enjoy the first quarter. Uh, fingers crossed. Well, I'm as a Richmond fan, I need Essendon to win for our top four hopes. So fingers <laughs> crossed they do. Um, so good luck with that. But just before we do let you go, Natalie, um, US Open picks, men's and women's winners. Yeah, okay. So I think it's pretty hard to go past Novak at the moment. Yep. If I can't see him losing. He's had a couple of scares, particularly at Cincinnati, and he's just managed to really pull it pull it together. Um, and I think that that class is going to hold him in good stead. But like I said earlier, if he does get knocked out, then this is a great opportunity for someone maybe like a, a Sitsipas to, to really come through. Um, he's still rated pretty highly, ranked pretty highly, and... Um, I think that he'll probably have it over the likes of Team and Zverev, but obviously we need to, to wait and see uh, exactly what happens. Probably a good opportunity for someone like a, an Alex or to really get quite deep into the tournament. So maybe we could see, I know he hasn't played a lot of tennis over the last 12 months, but might be able to see uh, Alex or make it through to the second week. And then as far as the women's go, I don't think Serena's going to win. I just don't think she's playing well enough. And while I know we're, there's a lot of excitement about her potentially breaking Margaret Court's record, I don't think it's going to happen 
at this US Open, which might mean that it, it never happens really. There are, I know there's a lot of talk about the players that aren't there, but there's still some real quality in that women's uh, in that women's draw. Naomi Osaka would be my pick, but it's going to depend on that hamstring injury. So if that's not the case, maybe let's say, I know I feel like, I feel like I'm really sitting on the fence here, but maybe a Petra Kvitova, uh, somebody <laughs> like that. I'm going to say Osaka, assuming her hamstring yeah. um, holds up, otherwise Kvitova. Did you listen to our draw analysis show? Because that was exactly our pick as well. We said, um, uh, I think Joel said Osaka, <laughs> I said Kvitova. So, um, exactly. So exactly on the same track, Natalie and thank you so much for joining us here on breakpoint podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Good luck with the rest of 2020 and stay safe. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys and uh, enjoy the tennis. Natalie Yanidis there joining us here on breakpoint podcast. Joel, how good was that? It's so fun to have, have journos on that have covered tournaments and, and covered the Australian Open because we just love chatting about their passion for tennis and um, and love sharing their experiences um, and allowing them to share their experiences. So it was absolutely fantastic to have her on. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that's obviously someone that we haven't had on the on the show before. So it's always good to hear some, some new voices too. And um, yeah, as you said, she's had some really interesting experiences with the with the Australian Open and with some players. And I think what's great about her is, as well, Val, and, you know, not, not to say that a lot of journos aren't like this as well, but I think, you know, at, at heart, she's, you know, clearly she's a fan as well. Yeah. Um, so she sort of just gets what, you know, I think what, what, what people want to see and, and how people carry themselves at Grand Slams, like, uh, you know, getting out on the, on the outside courts like we talked about and sort of just, just losing the plot when, you know, when there's an Aussie out there or when mm-hmm. there's a five-setter, like uh, I'm sure you can speak to this when um, – Benoit played against uh, Marin Cilic this year in, uh, what was it, the second round? Yeah. Uh, now, what a match. Just, that was bananas. Absolutely bananas, yeah. that match. Um, we got every, we got every, actually, the end of the US Open, we're going to reveal it, and I'm, we've completely forgotten about it. Benoit, bingo. We still haven't. Oh, re- yeah. We did this now. We were, we were camping, or I was I was camping at the um uh, during the Australian Open and um and yeah you came one night because you were in Rye um we were in Rosebud and we were sitting there watching the tennis on our on our phones being really antisocial um and <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic and we decided that we would we would start Benoit Bingo and we came up with all these points I think I've still got them on my phone but I think it's time to reveal it. Or do we wait until we finally get him on the show, and then we get and then we get it going? I don't know, but no, I, I think we can reveal it. I think we can reveal. No, it. I think we have to reveal it. I think we have to reveal it, and then we'll post it on socials after the show. But speaking of Benoit, it's time for Benoit of the week, Joel. And well, this is our favourite segment where we 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 pretty much just give uh, someone who's had an up and down week or an up week or a down week, whatever, um, just a bit, little bit of love or hate, um, whatever whatever we see fit. But this week um, we had someone, but we've changed it last minute after what's happened uh, over the past few days with the USTA debacle. So we'll, uh, I'll, I'll give this one to you and you can um, you can tee off if you like. Yeah, so you mentioned it there, Val, the, uh, the uh, four-letter acronym, the USTA. Uh, they are the recipients of this week's Benoit of the Week. And, well, the reason that they get it is because, I mean, they have had sort of a, you know, um, I guess a quintessential Benoit-type performance this week. Had a good start, but didn't really end on a great note in our book anyway. Um, of course, we spoke, to, we spoke to Luke Saville last week from the bubble. And, you know, based on what he said and what a few other players had said at that point, um, you know, things were going pretty well um, inside the bubble. And, you know, for the most part, still we we should say for the most part, uh, seems like things have been been pretty well handled. Um, but in the last few days, as we've seen, uh, maybe things are just starting to unravel a little bit. Starting with with Ben Wipe's positive uh, in- infection, um, that's exactly what we didn't want to see, and what the whole thing is there uh, to prevent. And uh, you know, as as we've already spoken about, there were eleven people have been deemed. Uh, close contacts of Benoit, but they're, they're working with a different set of rules than, than what was agreed to. And um, we were talking about it earlier in the show, but, you know, with something as serious as, as COVID-19, I just don't understand how um, we can have all the players um, agree to a set of rules and then 
uh, for that set of rules. Of course, firstly at Cincinnati and then at the US Open, for those rules to be really just changed on the fly, um, and for certain people to to, to live under uh, you know under under a different set of guidelines to everyone else, it's just it's just not really fair, and in in some respects, it's really irresponsible as well. We can't be we can't be putting uh, you know as as much as we understand that you know, these events and these organizations need to make need to make their money and make, make their events appealing. We can't be putting the dollar over the safety of however many hundred people that are operating within that bubble. It's a very, very delicate environment. Yeah, 100% agree, Joel. And yeah, it's it's disappointing that this has happened. And we said, yeah, Luke Saville said that he was really happy last week. And um, I think that's changed for a lot of players. And um, Noah Rubin's podcast, if you haven't listened to it, um, it's uh, behind the racket with him and Mike Cation as well. So, Fantastic podcast there, and um, it gave a really good insight into what's happening in the bubble and really honest, and um, yeah, absolutely loved it. So Benoit of the week, and the standings go as follows. It is Novak Djokovic on four. Somehow I'm on two. Benoit, Joel, uh, Donald Trump, Roger Federer, Fight MND, Fabio Fonini, um, Dominika Tsibulkova, Alexander Zverev, Diana Yastremska, Jeannie Bouchard, Ozark, Tommy Haas, Kim Kleisters, Nick Kyrgios, USTA, and Pat Cash. <sighs> All on one. Um, I got it out in the end. Um, but remember, uh, Joel, thank you very much, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to US Open. Um, great to have Grand Slam Tennis back, and um, we'll catch you next week for a little bit more. Yeah, sounds good, mate. I'm going to sign off, and I'm going to turn the TV back on and just keep watching tennis. Absolutely fantastic. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Breakpoint Pod, Instagram at Breakpoint Podcast, Facebook Breakpoint Podcast as well. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Wooshka as well. We're there wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to us every week. We are going to be bringing you all the tennis action for the rest of the season and beyond in this weird and yet somehow wonderful and not wonderful 2020. Uh, I've been Val Febo. Joel Fritchie on the other line. Have a great week, tennis fans. Enjoy the US Open.